Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 74 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, May 15th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Lott. Bobby, we can hear you. Hey, did you get the sound balance right this time? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so listen, I, I, I feel bad because it, there seems to be a, an, an annoying and alarming pattern where all of my technical screw-ups tend to be to your disadvantage on this podcast. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the commentary just wondered, maybe you're just, uh, the phrase was boisterous, more boisterous than me, well, which, I, I you think know, that's let's say. objectively true. That's objectively true. Like, I'm not sure how much this is a technical thing. Well, uh, we'll, we'll at least try to counterbalance it technically, right? So right. so hopefully this week we've done better. Um, you know, I, I have to be distracted from the rest of the world somehow. Well, I and I'm pounding my latte here to get a little Ooh. more extra energy to compete with you. So hopefully we'll have a good sound balance today. Um, if nothing else, I, can't, I, I vouch nothing. I say nothing for the content. So what, what's going? I mean, Bobby, our our, our contributing member really yeah, sort sustaining of poured, members. Our sustaining, sustaining member. member really poured it on last week. Uh, you know, two what, of our sustaining members. Uh, <laughs> that's right. You know, maybe one day we'll we'll learn the name. Uh, of old John Doe and in, in send of some national security law podcast swag because we need we don't have swag. We, we, well, one day, uh, in, listeners, tell us what kind of swag we should Ooh, have. There we go. Inquiring minds want to know. Indeed, uh, Dovey Mattis contributes once again. So we have a breakdown of the D.C. Circuit opinion. We'll spend a lot of time opinions. Opinions. That's right. We'll talk about the divided D.C. Circuit Ooh. opinions, and this time we actually know what they said. Unlike, <laughs> unlike last, last week, week. <laughs> we were just speculating. Although I think we were we were fine in terms of our speculation. Yeah, they say a bit more than I expected. I mean, I think so. I was I I was pleasantly surprised by some of the things the majority opinion does. Although, as we'll discuss, I think there are some interesting questions left unanswered, not about this case, but about where the line really is. Um, so we'll go there. Okay. Um, Bobby, some really interesting developments in the case of our other sustaining member, whose name we do know, Al Nashiri. That's true. Also, a sustaining member generating. I mean, you take these two out, like the the show would be always under an hour. <laughs> For once, it would be under an hour. I, I predict today we'll get it under an hour. Oh, uh oh. Because I'm just going to run out of the room at 59 minutes. I think that's right. Like, only, only through your through your intervention. Yeah, that's right. So we had a, we had some really interesting developments in Al Nashiri in the D.C. Circuit of all places. Um, which I think is going to remember those guys. Um, and so th- this led me to write a very. Um, <laughs> I, I basically locked myself in a Starbucks Friday morning and wrote and, and just wrote a blo- just you know vomited out a blog post about like how to understand <laughs> what you previously called the seven layer dip, where at least as of this morning I think there are ten layers. Yeah, I was going to say I think you can I think you up, uh, upgraded it to ten layer dip, and, and it's only growing. Okay, as so all dips I, do. you know I knew you'd engage pretty heavily on that, and I confess in a, in a bout of efficiency. And laziness. I thought, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm not even just. I'm really not even going to engage on this. I'll wait till we till we talk, and then I could be the disinterested interviewer that right. finds it's out like, from wait, you what wait, the heck wait, went on. What are you talking about? All right. All right so we're going to talk about to that. Um, we also had an interesting order. Speaking of the DC Circuit in Smith versus Trump, this is the I think forgotten and misbegotten um, service member lawsuit trying to raise the question before the John Doe case ever came along mm-hmm. about whether the 2001 AUMF covers ISIS. The DC Circuit is now asking the parties to brief mootness, which is never a good sign. Okay, so there's our D.C. Circuit hat trick. Indeed. Um, In honor of the Capitals. Touche. Three D.C. Circuit... This is a D.C. Circuit heavy episode. It is. Uh, but in, in honor of that, we'll then pivot away from the courts. <laughs> we'll talk about the, you know, in, in our line of work uh, in teaching in com law, there's a lot of talk about the Constitution outside the courts. Indeed. Hey, there's a lot of national security law outside the courts. Most and, national security law. Right, exactly. In, in one area where that's certainly true is, uh, well, how about all the detainees, the Islamic State detainees that are in actual are actually being held, just 
not by the United States, except for John Doe. Um, we've got detainees in Iraq, and we've got detainees in Syria. Or more to the point, I should say, we don't have them. Right. The Iraqis have detainees. If we had them, that would be a story. Well, the Iraqis have them, but we've got access to them, as we'll talk about with reference to one New York Times story. And then, of course, the SDF have lots of them, including a bunch of European citizen or in this case, former European citizen, Islamic State members. And there is a food fight underway, and we've talked about this a lot. And Jeff Sessions wants to send them to Gitmo. Well, something does need to be done, because I tell you this, uh, you shouldn't expect the SDF to still be holding them, nope. say, two, three years from now. So we'll, we'll compare and contrast yep. a New York Times and Washington Post story about those two ends of the, uh, yep. the detention barbell over yep. there. Uh, we'll also do a pretty quick SCOTUS update. So yesterday, the Supreme Court issued its first decision since the middle of April. Um, Five rulings, none with sort of super on-point yeah, national none, security None of the big-time ones we've been waiting for. Or Dalmazi. Um, <laughs> but, but, but one, I think, especially interesting Fourth Amendment decision um, that I think has some potential implications for at least some computer crime situations and, you know, expectations of privacy in online accounts, email accounts, et cetera. So okay. we'll, we'll talk briefly about Bird versus United States. Um, we'll talk about, I think, one of the sort of more important, not very legal national security news stories of the past week, President Trump's withdrawal from the JCPOA, the Iran agreement, um, and some of the, I think, unfortunate narratives that have emerged from that withdrawal about- I bet we can extract a couple of legal angles oh, on that one. I, I, we can find the law in anything. Um, and then I think we're going to do a little bit of a frivolity smorgasbord. So next week, right, in episode 75, we're going to we're gonna actually do some research. Yeah. We're going to oh, come let's prepared. Let's invite the listeners to weigh in on this one. Maybe get a little listener poll going. Yeah, so for next week, right, we want to know best one-hit wonders and worst one-hit wonders, right? Like, so what we mean by this is, you know, what are the what are the iconic, either good or terrible, you know, bands that are known for exactly one song? There you go. And okay, so that's good and bad. How do we distinguish good and bad? That's, that's subjective. That's okay. a Turing test. Yeah. All right, um, and I'll be part of the fun, of course. As you know, I love breaking down these categories. I just, I just can't wait to talk about the, the the album titled "The Very Best of Dexy's Midnight Runners." <laughs> Was released Which, as a single. Well, it actually has like 12 songs on it, but they should all just be Come On Eileen. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we've, but, we've given you a starter kit there, but that's, but that's next obvious. week, yeah. right? This week, uh, we're going to do a quick hit smorgasbord, maybe some NBA playoffs. We got to talk about last night. Um, yeah. Maybe a little bit about the, the Texas Sunflower Ceremony, which is coming up, and how we have this really interesting, oh, cute, bizarre nice. tradition here at the law school. Uh, not bizarre at all. There's a, there's a whole story behind it. Yeah, I feel like the story, I feel like the tradition has actually come to like out-dominate out the underlying story. You know, that's actually, I think, the best traditions because yeah. then you have some... if Because if the, the story itself is pretty dumb. You know, you have to grade on a curve. It, it was 100 <laughs> years ago. It is a fancy thing. We're all grading on curves. All yeah, right. Exactly. So, lots to say. Bobby thinks we're going to be out of here in under an hour. I'm taking the over. Yeah, smart man. All right. Doe versus Mattis. So, let's just... Let, let's remind everybody where we are, right? So, uh, John Doe, still in U.S. military detention as an enemy combatant somewhere in Iraq. Right, um, the merits of his habeas petition challenging whether there's a legal and factual basis to detain him still before Judge Tanya Chutkin and the D.C. District Court, but this was the government's appeal of Judge Chutkin's order barring Doe's transfer to quote 
country B. <laughs> country B. Okay, so we have country A and country B. Can you decode that for me? All right, so I actually am not 100% sure about country A. I am 100% sure that country B is Saudi Arabia. Right, so in the goal here, the agreement is with country B. Right. There's, there's, there's no some suggestion in the this. government's appeal that they're also pursuing an option of transferring to country A. And there are lots of reasons to think, given the way this has been argued, that country A is Iraq. I think it is. Not. A, I agree. I just. I, I am 100% confident that country B is Saudi Arabia. I'm only yep. like 99% confident. Right. And, and just for those who haven't listened to us before, if you have, you're like, yeah, yeah, enough recaps. You talk about this every darn every week. Every week. Um, there's, there's no question that what's at issue here is a diplomatic agreement between the United States and Saudi Arabia. For the Saudis to take John Doe, because let's emphasize, John Doe is not just an American citizen, right, but he, American Saudi. Saudi citizen. he's a Saudi citizen, indeed lived most of his life there. That part's actually public, right? So what's public yeah. is that he's a dual American Saudi citizen. What is not officially public is the country B and the country with which we had to deal for his transfer is Saudi Arabia. So Judge Chuckin had issued an order barring Doe's transfer mm-hmm. on the ground that she did not believe the government had identified positive legal authority to justify the transfer. So let me step in there to use that to remind listeners of the the sort of the two steps to the analysis. I think it it seems everyone agrees this is the right way to think about it. And it's not hard to track how this doctrine works, therefore. Step one, you have to decide whether or not the fact pattern presented falls within the Valentine rule. Valentine being this, you know, roughly... Over-commercialized holiday. Oh, wait. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you bet you Valentine extra United States versus Nidecker. Okay, so now this calls for a question and a digression. So let's slip into some frivolity. Valentine, do you go out to dinner at some expensive overpriced restaurant and you and Karen hit the town on Valentine's Day evening? Or do you resist giving in to the, you know, whatever the prefix is at the place and just cook at home and have a nice dinner at home? I've done both with different levels of success. Um, it, <laughs> Karen, we need you to call in to yeah, the basically. live program. Um, you know, I, I, I think Valentine's Day requires celebration of how lucky I am to have Karen in my life. Um, I'm not sure that like the commercialization is the way to celebrate it. Yeah, I think we are definitely on the let's be home as a family yeah, yeah. and celebrate. Together. Why not about the family part? Um, yeah, well, as your kids get older, <laughs> indeed. All right, so right, back to Valentine. So indeed. the Valentine rule is a Supreme Court decision that dealt with the situation in which the det- the persons were accused of a crime in France. They're in the United States. France wants them, but there's not an extradition treaty that's relevant. But there is a handshake agreement. There's an agreement. There, so the executives are respectively willing to do it. But the question is can you take a citizen and expatriate them that way? And the answer, and Steve got a text. <laughs> and, and, and the answer is I forgot to turn off notifications on my phone. <laughs> okay, so um, you would think like if that's the general rule, then the only question then becomes step two. What yep. is step two? Step two is do you have either a treaty or a statute providing affirmative legal authority? In other words, it's not an inherent power to the executive. It's almost a separation of powers right, point that right. the, the lawmakers or the treaty makers must give the executive uh, authority to transfer in that circumstance. Okay, the wrinkle is at step one because in the Munaf case, the Supreme Court decided, well, there are circumstances where we don't apply that Valentine rule, right. such as a person's voluntarily gone into Iraq is captured there by the U.S. military, is wanted affirmatively by the Iraqis for a crime that they have charged, and indeed in, in one of the one of the defendants had already convicted, had, con- convicted in absentia, I yeah. think. Uh, and, and the question was, would the United States simply release them right. to the local sovereign who's prosecuted them? Munaf says, in that case, you know, Valentine doesn't apply. You can transfer. Him. Or, or I mean, I think we could also read Munaf as saying, like, the agreement between the U.S. and Iraq. I mean, I, uh, well, okay, I, yeah. no, I, I feel pretty strongly about this because I know the ACLU in its briefing tried to, 
draw attention to the idea that like, yeah. there was a bilateral, right. uh, there was an agreement between the, the court countries. The rely on it. That was affirmative. I, I strongly don't agree that I, that was— I'm with you. Yeah. So, so we've said all along, and I think you were the first person to, to put it quite this succinctly, that this case really sort of falls in, in, in a gap exactly. right, between what's squarely controlled by Valentine and what Munoff clearly exempts from Valentine. And indeed, I said that although— if it were me, so so a line has to be drawn. A yeah, doctrinal line has to be drawn somewhere between Valentine and Munaf. And for me, I would find, I would draw the line citing his dual citizenship. So right. assuming it's Saudi Arabia, that right. you have to have that as a necessary condition and the voluntary entry into the war zone. Right now, those factors, I think I'd extend Munaf, not Valentine. But I said that that's just my choice, and this is up for grabs. You cannot say that it's clearly required to draw the Which line. Which is part one of where I'm going to disagree with Judge Henderson's dissent. All right, so so. So, let, let's, so Judge Chuckin goes with, you know, no affirmative authority to transfer. Munaf doesn't apply. Bars the transfer. The government appeals. Um, D.C. Circuit panel, Judge Srinivasan, Judge Wilkins, Judge Henderson. Well, Judge Henderson wasn't there for the argument, but she clearly participates in the case. We get a divided ruling. I think we found out about it last Monday afternoon, right? But we didn't know what it was. And then it was unsealed Wednesday afternoon. Um, which led to two blog posts from you and one from me on Thursday morning. We got all excited because, you know, it's our sustaining member. We have to provide you know, uh, right. you know, attention. Service. So the majority, let's sum up real quick. The majority's approach follows the two-step model we just outlined. Uh, Wilkins, Srinivasan and Wilkins argue that Valentine should control uh, and We'll get to step two in a second. I want to say something about the reasoning there. Basically, they said, look, yeah, Munaf is effectively limited to that scenario. And the— Can, can I actually read the quote on about oh, what they said yeah, about yeah. Munaf? No, just, actually, that great. Just yeah, illustrate. Please do. Please do um, so Judge Srinivasan's majority opinion reads Munaf as standing for the proposition that, quote, when a foreign country wishes to prosecute an American citizen— who is within its borders for a crime he committed while there, the executive can relinquish him to the country's custody, end quote. Right. And that and that's clearly describes Munaf, and it makes tons of sense. The, here's the key to understanding it. Uh, the majority is saying, look, the, the foreign states or the receiving states' equities are at their highest and at their most persuasive when it's territorial, voluntary presence in territory, and then territorial prescriptive jurisdiction to criminalize the activity for which they want to prosecute the guy. Mm -hmm. And they say, look, th yes, there are other heads of pre uh, prescriptive authority, including uh, citizenship base, right. that, that could be implicated here. But these open the door to a slippery slope, yep. in effect. I'm paraphrasing, yep. but I think that's a fair description. The majority is saying, look, once you go beyond the scenario Steve just described, you're off to the races. It proves too much because states can cite all sorts of reasons why they're interested in somebody. And, and that does make sense. I have a lot of sympathy with right. that point so, of view. I so, found it fairly compelling. So the, major, right, the majority basically says that um, Munaf is a narrow exception, right, to a general rule espoused in Valentine that is not limited to domestic right. detention. And therefore, it all boils down to whether or not there's an affirmative grant of authority to transfer. Now, here it gets pretty interesting. Um, what you're looking for is a treaty or statute that well, one might think there's a clear statement rule saying it clearly actually confers right. that authority, but that's not the way the majority goes. They're accepting the possibility that it's an implied authority, and they say there is a candidate on the board. We just don't know if it applies to this particular fact pattern. The candidate is the 2001 AUMF. And the logic would be that, a la Hamdi, 
the AUMF must be read to include the traditional incidents of warfare and that transfer of a military captive, a properly detained military captive from one co-belligerent to another co-belligerent would be included within the uh, the general grant of military force there. But that insofar as the AUMF is the authority, it has to be properly applied to the transferee. Right. So, so the predicate would be that this is a person within the scope of the AUMF. So the bottom line is absolutely they can transfer him but only after winning the merits of the habeas case. Now, I, I think that's quite clear. Here's my here's the, the one place where I would have liked to see a bit more from the majority opinion. I'm curious what you think about this. Is So does it have to be a treaty or can it be in a sole executive agreement, right? So, for example, there are circuit-level decisions, no Supreme Court cases, finding SOFAs, right, status of forces agreements, as providing sufficient authority to transfer at least our own service members um, to the custody of foreign countries for crimes committed within that country's territory that are covered by the SOFA. Are those all situations where the service member is currently territorially present over there, a la Munaf? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't, but but certainly the the logic of those circuit opinions is not a Munaf based Valentine doesn't apply approach, right? The logic is the sofa is the authority, right? Which I, I think there's some question about that. I think the idea that a sole executive agreement could do the trick is a little bit hard to square with this idea because in that case, uh, you know, it's really just kind of a question of formality on the spectrum between some sort of phone call between. Well, this the, is what I'm getting at, right? So, right. so what I'm getting at is is it seems to me one of two things has to, well one of two things has to be true, right? Either sole executive agreements will never satisfy Valentine, right? And that the better way to understand the sofa cases is the Moonoff exception, right? right? Which is totally possible. I just I haven't done the work to run them all down. Um, or th- we get into the much broader debate, Bobby, about the legal status of sole executive agreements. Right. And which is there a sort of a degree of formality that makes them different from whatever was going on here? Right. right. Because if the if the Secretary of Defense, acting with authority delegated by the president, enters into a deal with the Saudi foreign minister, that sure sounds like a sole executive agreement. Right. And these are all reasons why why the formalities uh-huh. uh, questions a little bit of a, a swamp to get into. It is a swamp, but as you know, it's it's a well trod swamp. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of scholarship in foreign relations law about when, what kinds of agreements are and are not, right, do rise to the sort of level of sole executive agreements as opposed to just handshakes. Well, bearing in mind that the service member yeah. scenario you just described could be picked up by the Valentine Munaf distinction we just talked about, I think that there's a lot to be said for the idea that if the Valentine rule means anything, it means that disposing of the liberty of a citizen in such a dramatic way, expatriation in effect, uh, is, is so remarkable that you need normally the full lawmaking apparatus or its parallel cousin, the treaty-making apparatus, to be engaged. And that ain't a sole executive agreement. Right. So anyway, clearly whatever there was in this case wasn't enough for the majority. So then they move on to the AUMF question and say, as you say, listen, go back to the district court, right? Win on the merits, and then you can transfer him. So so two questions. Let's break that one down. This is pretty interesting. So first of all, do we agree that uh, the grant of all necessary and appropriate military force We have to agree, because of Hamdi, that it includes uh, the traditional incidents of warfare. We don't have to, but uh, we're going to. (laughs) Um, But do we agree? Four four people captured on the battlefield. Now, I I think Joe, right? Right. right. And and here we've got one. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, it's... As I've said before, super analogous on its, no, 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 on but its it, apparent But facts. if it were like Jose Padilla, right? Yeah, but, but focusing on this guy. Okay. So do we think that transfer between allies is like detention? Detention and use of force itself, those are easy cases for what does warfighting sure. authority include. Sure. Does detainee transfer fall within that? You know, it's a little bit more obscure, but certainly in you can find plenty of examples, right? I think it's probably a pretty fair inclusion to say 
transfer between two real co-belligerents fighting in the same conflict. Sure. This is a person associated with that conflict. I, I'm fine with that interpretation of the AOMF. Um, are the Saudis a qualified co-belligerent? That, so, right. So, so, so I, I don't have a problem with the theory, right? The question is, it, 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 it begs, it assumes a question about the Saudis that I'm not sure is obvious. Well, so I, I'm so curious about this, right? So I, I went and looked at the coalition's website. Uh-huh. And it proudly announces that this is a 75-country effort. Of course, you know. Well, that's like the Military Commission's website that proudly announces that it's devoted to transparency. I'm not sure that that's <laughs> like it. Um, but, that you know, there's a lot to be said about that. Let's save that for our military discussions oh, it's in a coming. moment. It's coming. Um, I think what's interesting here is you've got these 75 countries listed. And the Saudis are on there. So the question is, is, is the fact that somebody said Yes, we support your effort. Therefore, right. you can put us on the website. Is that good enough? Well, we need to know details, of course, about whether or not the Saudis are actually doing things functionally of any significance here. Or, or is it really enough to say, look, the executive represents that they have, they have formally announced they're part of the coalition? I, I will note, though, that on this logic, they don't have to just limit themselves to countries A and B. They've got countries A through, well, how many times do you run through the alphabet to get right. to 75? Right. Um, some of the other candidate countries for a transfer, Steve, include Estonia, Ooh. Cameroon, uh-huh. and Panama. Not, Palau's not on there? You know, I don't think there were many Pacific islands. Uh, yeah. All right, well. In any event, I, I'm kind of teasing <laughs> here. It just, I'm, I'm tr- obviously being a little sarcastic to underscore the point that the transfer to allies category. Right, it's pretty broad. It's potentially very murky at the borders, right? Um, can you transfer to the Iraqis under this theory? Sure. Can you transfer to the Brits under this theory or the French? Sure. There are people right. who are actually war fighting. And then the question is, and maybe the answer is, hey, dummy, you don't know enough details here. The Saudis have combat aircraft, et cetera, involved. Maybe they do. Uh, maybe they're not like Panama. I bet the Panamanians don't have combat Although it sure, it sure now feels like a question that the D.C. Circuit's saying that the district court might consider as part of its analysis. Um, wait, you mean at what stage, right? Because well, so, right, so are you properly detained, right? And then, even if you're properly detained, is the transfer to um, a real co-belligerent? To a real co-belligerent, right? That, and so, right. So, that, question if, about if, the opinion. You read yeah. it more carefully than I did, I yeah. suspect. Did they actually say anything in the opinion's public portion saying that transfer to state B would be okay if you went on the merits? I, um, I so, think it read that way to me, but I wasn't reading it. That I don't closely. think it, I don't recall a passage that literally says that, but it sure it sure does suggest. Right, that the this panel would a affir- would affirm yeah. a transfer order if if it came part and parcel with a merits determination. Now, we, of course, we, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, just it suggests that Doe actually couldn't relitigate this question of whether the Saudis, whether State B is in. the I, I don't know. Group. I don't know if the panel held that. It might, right, that might be something that was in the redactions, right? Because it would be so specific yeah. to Saudi Arabia. I will just say this. I mean, the key to the second part of the holding. And first, Judge Henderson does not dissent from the second part of the holding. Her whole dissent is the first part. Right. Um, that's not. She doesn't agree with it. She just doesn't reach it, right? Yeah. Um, the key to me about the whole if you're properly detained, then you can be transferred point isn't just the problem you've raised about, you know, does that mean any co-belligerent? Um, it also is um, properly detained according to whom? So I'm sure the D.C. Circuit is not suggesting that the moment that the government prevails in the district court, Doe can be transferred, right? Because presumably Doe's entitled to appeal the merits of that I think they have to seek an immediate stay. And indeed, well, they, sure. I, I think that if they didn't, there'd be a window, just as there is right now, a window for the government to let this guy walk out of the no, facility. No, no, no. But so imagine, so let's play this out, right? Imagine the government does not appeal this rule. And I want to come back to that, okay. right? Imagine yeah. they don't appeal this. They go back to the district court. They litigate on the merits. Judge Shutkin rules. You know, Judge Shutkin's been listening to Bobby. Judge Shutkin says, ah. you know, the AOMF covers ISIS. 
no non-detention act problem, we're home, right? I think that the, you know, within minutes of that decision, I think those lawyers are, you know, up filing an appeal and a stay in the DC circuit to say, like, you know, we think Judge Shuckin's wrong, but in any event, yeah. right, we want to be able to appeal this before he's transferred. Yeah, yeah. No, I think they'll, they're good lawyers. They'll have this buttoned up in a way that makes sure that there isn't some weird gap that yep. could be exploited. Yep. Of course, that draws attention to the gap that's there right now. They could let this it's guy. Right. They could let this guy walk out of the facility, and then who knows what the Iraqis right, would do. So, so we haven't talked much about Judge Henderson's dissent, and I want yeah. to say a couple of quick words about that. You were so, not happy. Well, I, I just I think it's not that I wasn't happy. I mean, you know, it's a dissent. Right? You were not impressed. I was not impressed. That's um, what I mean. So I think the pro- the central problem with Judge Henderson's dissent is not that I don't understand where she's coming from. It's that I think she dramatically overreads Munaf, right? So she basically goes out of her way to try to suggest that this case is on all fours with Munaf and that therefore Doe can't meet any of the preliminary injunction factors, let alone likelihood of success on the merits. Um, you and I, I think, have been quite clear about why we think Munaf doesn't control this fact pattern. One could choose to extend it, right? That is yeah, the prerogative of a judge. But it's got to be an extension. But it's got to be an extension. And you have to, you have to explain why. So, right, at least problem number one. And, and indeed, Judge Henderson radically downplays um, what to me is one of the most important factual distinctions between this case and Munaf, which is that in Munaf, they traveled to Iraq, right, the country that wanted them. Um, and so there was, right, that's not true here. Um, I know you think it's relevant that Doe traveled to a war zone, right? But the yeah. war zone wasn't Saudi Arabia. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that. I, so what I would have liked to have seen was an argument that though he didn't travel to Saudi Arabia, right. he's a citizen who's lived yeah. most of his life yeah. there. Yeah. So, but, okay. So, so problem number one, she overreads Munaf, right? Yeah. Problem number two, I think she misstates the purpose of habeas corpus. So she, she says that the only basis to enjoin a captive's transfer from executive branch custody is to allow him to challenge his soon-to-be erstwhile custody. I think that's wrong, right? That I, I think all the way back to the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679, habeas has allowed prisoners who are otherwise lawfully detained to nevertheless object to their transfer, right? That, that is to say, you're not objecting to your transfer for the sole purpose of preserving your ability to challenge your detention. You're objecting to your transfer independently of whether you are currently properly held by this con- government. Right. I mean, look at so imagine someone who is um, serving a duly obtained prison sentence in the U.S. and is in and another country seeking his extradition. Right. He's not using habeas to say I'm being wrongly held by the U.S. He's using habeas to say I can't be transferred to country C. I think that the, the mistake that's buried within there is assuming that all that's going on here is an attempt to vindicate the kind of original merits interest yep. of general liberty. Yep. But the Valentine liberty, as I'm going to call it, yep. is a distinct type of liberty Exactly interest. so. That's well said. All right. Um, third, right, um, Judge Henderson tries in her dissent to preserve cases where the government is acting in bad faith, right, where the government is trying to transfer someone to defeat the sort of, to avoid the legal liability of perhaps not being able to hold them. The problem that I think her dissent does not grapple with is in her view, under her approach, um, there would never be an opportunity to litigate that, right? Because there'd be no basis for a district court to enjoin a transfer based simply on the speculative possibility, what she calls the far-fetched hypothetical, right? That there might be misconduct by the government. Of course, that's putting the cart before the horse, right? The purpose of the litigation in this context is at least in part to flesh out exactly what the government's justifications are. And so if if she believes that no litigant would be entitled to an injunction on these facts, how would a litigant ever show bad faith? Right, right? That's because a problem. They'd be transferred before there was an injunction. Um, and then last and not, and not least, right, I think Judge Henderson 
makes says a lot in her dissent about why this is a terrible thing. She says, um, affirmance portends a hazardous expansion of the judiciary's role in matters of war and diplomacy. I think that's a little overstated. This is one case, right? There's been exactly one case of a U.S. citizen, which, of course, is doing so much of the work here, that Doe is at least partly a U.S. citizen, um, with these circumstances, right? Not Munaf, not Valentine. One case since 9-11. You know, it's funny because I, I want to be in a position, because of my own view of how it ought to turn out, to agree with whatever's in the dissent. But, of course, this set of rationales, as you point out, is not terribly persuasive for all the reasons you said. It's, it's disappointing to me that there's not an attempt to make the case for a reasoned extension of Munaf to a carefully right. cabined, indeed, Equally unique and narrow set of circumstances. Right. It's not the dissent I would have written. No, it's certainly, it's certainly not the one I've argued. Um, um, all so, right. So, well. so, so then the question is, so, so you're the government, Bobby. Yeah. What do so, you do? So here's something I wrote about that morning that kind of came to me um, the night before I wrote it out of the blue. And I realized there's a there's a sort of an elephant in the room here that's it's been getting more visible as the sun comes up and the light comes in the room. Early on in this entire story, it became a, uh, a premise of the discussion that, well, it would be great if we could just bring him to, back to America and prosecute him here, but can't do it because who knows what sort of evidence uh, we could possibly assemble. This guy was captured by F- SDF forces. How will we, unless he's willing to testify and inculpate himself, how will we ever be able to prove that he was an Islamic State fighter? Um, and it belatedly dawned on me as I thought about this that in the FBI affidavit uh, responding on the merits back at the district court level, which is not that long ago, um, there's this extensive uh, laydown of what the government, at least some of what the government has on this guy, including a lot of evidence apparently about his social media activity before he traveled to the Islamic State, all of which makes a powerful case that he was indeed an Islamic State fanboy who wanted to go over there to be part of what was going on there uh, and, and punching holes in his apparently uh, conflicting story that, no, 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 I was an ad hoc uh, freelance journalist just trying to see what was happening. Um, It seemed to me, Steve, that there is a pretty strong case just through the facts of where he ended up Mm -hmm. and all this preceding uh, activity that the government has clearly a ton of evidence of. He can clearly be prosecuted for material support uh, to the Islamic State. Sure, it that way. and, and, And it's hard to understand now why it is that it's claimed that uh, they couldn't prosecute him. It seems like they could, in fact, which then led me to think, okay, well, bearing in mind that this whole thing is it's creating adverse precedents at the D.C. circuit level right. on a really important question, as the dissent emphasizes, and uh, potentially is going to force the first ever judicial ruling on the scope of the AMF as applied to the Islamic State. Why in the world don't they go ahead and bring him here for an, a material support prosecution? You need a reason. And there is a reason that presents itself. And uh, and Katie Bill Williams has some really good reporting on this. Uh, and I'll mention it in a moment. But my speculation was, well, maybe the problem is, A, you can never guarantee conviction. And, and we're going to talk more about that hesitation in a minute once we get to the Beatles in our, our program later. Uh, you can't guarantee conviction and being a citizen once he's here, either after serving his sentence or if he's acquitted, um, he has every right to walk out of the courtroom and, you know, go, go 
try to let an apartment next door to you, Steve. And, yeah. you know, you, that sets off all the don't bring them here type things right. in the context of a citizen who's really hard to keep out yeah. otherwise. And certainly can't really be removed because he's got birthright citizenship to be here. And I think maybe that's what's going on. Now, now Katie Bell Williams re- report- As opposed to a non-citizen where there are immigration detention options. Yeah, and there's, there, there's, yeah, there's all kinds of removal possibilities with the non-citizen. But with the citizen, if you assume the possibility of acquittal, mm-hmm. then you're not- you know, you're, right. you're going to have that guy on the streets pretty quickly. Now, could he end up here anyways? Uh, maybe, but you can see where they'd like to keep him at arm's length from mm-hmm. that perspective. And, uh, and and Katie Bell Williams' report says that, look, we've we've been asking about this. ACLU says no one's talking to us about trying to get a citizenship waiver. The government's denying that they're trying to leverage him for a citizenship waiver. But bear in mind, that's what happened in Hamdi. Yeah. Once Hamdi once Hamdi was sort of at this point in the proceedings, it, it's well, rough. no, no, Hamdi was uh, it, 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 at a point in the proceedings <laughs> where the government had won some. And others, I'm not saying it's on all fours, yeah, yeah. but once he was at a point in the proceedings where there was some risk to the government's position, yes. but also some risk to his own position, yes. the deal was struck and he waived his citizenship and was removed. And that was the end of that story. Um, I think it's interesting that both sides are saying, no, no, no we're, we're not talking about that here. Well, if that's not your concern, then you have a solution that could put, right. put an end to this case before the district court rules on the merits. Why aren't you doing it? I don't know. Yeah. What all do right. you think? Um, there's something else going on that we don't know. Could be. I think there's something else going on. And I think what we'll, we'll, we'll learn a bit about that from how the government responds to last week's ruling by the D.C. Circuit. Yeah. Do you think part of the deal here, and we saw this with yeah. the uh, the removal finally to Saudi Arabia of Darby. Yeah. Uh, part of this is just this is currently not a well-functioning interagency process. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But, I mean, you know, the... I'm really interested by the question of whether the government's going to try to take last week's ruling to the Supreme Court. I mean, you and I both, I think, are of the view that if they tried, they would succeed. Not not necessarily on the merits, but that the Supreme Court, out of deference to the executive branch in a case like this with a dissent from the D.C. Circuit, yeah, would it. absolutely grant cert if the government sought it. Um, the question is, does the government really want us? That's just going to slow things down further. Well, that might be to their advantage, right? I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, the... It's not clear to me whether the whether slowing down who's to whose advantage is slowing things down at this point. Oh, what a mess! Yep. Which is a nice segue to, to our Nishiri. All right. So speaking of the DC Circuit, so I, I want to go a little backwards here because um, I think folks have some familiarity already with Al Nishiri. Al Nishiri is one of the three and a half pending trials in the military commissions. Um, he's the alleged USS Cole bomber. His case is on indefinite abatement because of ethical problems that haven't been fully resolved. So last Thursday, Bobby, the DC Circuit issued a remarkably strange order um, in a case called Spears versus United States. And so I want to try to explain what the order is and what the heck it has to do with Nishiri, right? So Mary Spears and Rosa Eliadis are two of Al-Nashiri's three civilian lawyers, or former civilian lawyers, who resigned um, last fall, right, when this whole ethical issue came to light um, over concerns that the government was interfering with their communications with their clients um, and over an inability because the judge wouldn't let them of investigating it further or even telling their client that they found a microphone and potentially other evidence of interference. Um The government, as I think our listeners will remember, filed an interlocutory appeal of Judge Spath's abatement order to the Court of Military Commission Review. Um, Eliadis and Spears sought to intervene in the CMCR, in the government's interlocutory appeal, for the purpose of vindicating their own interests, right, as lawyers who, you know, 
one of the questions before the CMCR was, were they just, you know, was it appropriate for them to resign from the case? And did General Baker, the chief defense counsel, have the authority without Judge Spath to allow them to resign from the case? So they sought to intervene. CMCR said no. Um, hmm. You can participate as a Miki, but not as a party. And by the way, don't you dare refer yourselves as his former counsel because that's prejudging the issue, <laughs> which I thought was snide. Like, really, guys? This isn't a jury. Like, you know. Right. Who, who are we prejudicing? There? Right. I mean, you know, come on. Okay. Um, so they say no. So then Spears and Eliottis file a petition for review in the D.C. Circuit on the theory that the denial of intervention was an effectively final order. Layer upon layer of interlocutory appeal. Oh, my gosh. It's like a Fed court's exam dream. Oh, my God. Let's, let's, chart, let's whiteboard this. Seriously. Uh, well, I, I mean, my post sort of whiteboards it, yeah, right? It goes through all 10 layers. All right. So um, the, the actual sort of posture in which this case got, to the, got back to the D.C. Circuit is a petition for review of the CMCR's denial of these two civilian lawyers' motion to intervene. And all they want, right, is to intervene in the CMCR appeal. Well, if that's all they want, Bobby, the D.C. Circuit sure gave them a lot more. So here's the order <laughs> from Judges Millett, Pillard, and Wilkins. And by the way, if I want a sympathetic panel in the D.C. Circuit— I can't do any better than that. What'd they say? Okay. So, um, the U.S. Court of Military Commission Review's issuance of a final decision on the merits of the government's appeal is stayed. The purpose of the stay is to give this court sufficient opportunity to consider the emergency motion for stay and should not be considered. Okay. So, administrative stay of the appeal in the CMCR. Got it. Fine. Further ordered briefing. Um, Here's what we want briefing on. Whether existing rules or procedures applicable to military commissions may permit intervention as of right or any similar procedure, right? So do these guys, do these two lawyers have a right to intervene? Whether a third party whose own legal interests both are immediately and directly affected by a commission order and cannot be vindicated at the conclusion of the defendant's case has a right to appeal a commission order as applied to that party under the collateral order doctrine. Okay, so that's a pretty precise framing of uh, their status. It tends to tip their hand a little bit. Oh, it gets better or worse, depending upon (laughs) your perspective. Three, whether there's a legal basis for petitioner's asserted personal interest right or entitlement distinct from al-Nashiri's to communicate confidentially with their client, to preserve the confidentiality of their work process and product, and or to avoid transgressing rules of professional ethics that support their claim of injury. Again, that answers itself. Um, briefing also should address whether and how the commission's order for petitioners to continue the representation of al Nashiri, notwithstanding their release from that representation by General Baker, has and or will imminently cause a cognizable injury to petitioners. It gets better. Four. Whether petitioners have a distinct legal right to withdraw from representation, deprivation of that right by an Article I court without any opportunity for judicial review by an Article III court other than through a petition for a demandamus is constitutional. Ooh. And then they're not done, right? So that's like, hey, guys, we want to brief the crap out of this, right? So that, that just to jump in on that, yeah. it sounds like they are going to do what we want them to do, which is try to grab more than just narrow issues once it's within their reach. Oh, just you wait, my yeah, friend. Yeah, keep going. It is further ordered, and this is where things get really interesting, that the government submit to the court by noon on Monday, May 21st, in accordance with classified procedures, right? Um, A declaration describing any and all intrusions that have occurred, may have occurred, or that the government believes foreseeably could occur into the confidentiality of petitioners' communications with their client, petitioners' communications with other lawyers, legal personnel, support personnel, or third parties, or petitioners' legal work product, legal files, or legal records. 
In addition, the government is directed to submit to the court any classified or unclassified information provided by the government to General Baker in his capacity as chief defense counsel regarding alleged breaches, accidental or otherwise, of attorney-client confidentiality, and documents provided by the government to Judge Spath in this case in connection with defendant's motion to compel discovery regarding potential intrusions into attorney-client confidentiality, including but not limited to docket entries, and then they list four specific docket entries from the military commission. Ooh. Whoa. Okay, so I, he- I hear all that, and uh-huh. I think, so obviously they'll get to intervene, but it sounds like the court's prepared to rule on the propriety of the underlying uh, attorney removal or attorney release merits issues. So, so in the way I lay this out in my post, right, layers one through four are the underlying ethical dispute, right? Mm-hmm. Layer five is the sort of who decides question, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And I've been concerned for a while that all the CMCR was going to resolve was layer five. Right. Right. That, you know, they'd say Spath was right that it's up to him to excuse these lawyers. Um, he found that they didn't, excusal wasn't warranted. You know, we're ordering the lawyers back onto the case. Right. And it was going to have to then bubble up again. Right. But you're saying that it seems pretty clear the circuit's going to go ahead and like stick its hand into the dip and grab, they've all got a it. big giant nacho and they're digging down in the dip and getting many layers at one time all through the all in the context of this appeal of this of this appeal over which jurisdiction is not entirely obvious of an order denying a motion to intervene you know uh, i'd say good for them for grabbing these issues you know how i feel about the uh, intervening layers wasting time so i i agree but man this is aggressive oh it is it is now raises the question if you're the government is it aggressive enough to where you then try to challenge the attempt the by this scope panel, of the order. like how would that work procedurally? So in theory, they could object to the panel. We right. know what the panel so will say. So you do that and they'll say no. They could go for en banc. I can't imagine the DC Circuit's going to screw with one of its own panels for like a, a disclosure order. They could seek a stay from the Supreme Court. Yeah, so none of that's likely. I mean, why would the government want to put this, like, you know, the moment the government takes us to the Supreme Court, um, all hell will break loose because the Supreme Court's like, oh, you want us to look at this case, do you? Okay. I wonder. I, I, so, so probably this will stay with the panel. And then the question becomes... Well, there's another how, possibility. What's that? The government can make it go away. And how does the government make it go ahead and agree to let them intervene. stipulate they can intervene? Yeah. And, and moot it and out hope, from and under? Hope, and hope the CMCR uh, accepts the stipulation and, and, and then argue that the petition for review is moot. It is kind of funny to uh, make such a big stink to maybe it's to the government's advantage to a small degree to try to keep them out because, you know, that's just that many more people all filing papers against you. And I I get it. You you resist it because they're hostile to you. Um, But they bought themselves some serious trouble here. I I really I mean, so, yes, I I think they've they've messed with the wrong, you know, I don't know what the what the noun is here. But um, so it's interesting. If the government actually does comply, that means that as of next Monday, the D.C. Circuit's going to be getting a whole lot of information about this entire mess, as opposed to just, you know, the little drips and drabs that come out as we litigate, for example, Baker's contempt yeah. citation. Well, I would love it if what could happen here is we just streamline this into one panel decision. They can, they can then deal with whatever the right. consequences of it are. Just, just two quick thoughts, though, right? One, none of this would be happening if we weren't still shrouded in this pervasive secrecy, right? SPAS original ruling did not finding no good cause 
is still classified, right? The actual background of the alleged interference still classified. If there was no interference, what are we classifying, right? I mean, this is part of my concern. Well, it sounds like it's all more likely to, to it sounds like it's speeding up, which is a rare thing that we don't often get to <laughs> say with respect to that case. All right, so second thing really quickly, because I think we're, you know, I, I know we're, we're, we're running a bit long. Yeah, we'll, we'll go short on the rest of this but, stuff. But just, so really quickly on Nishiri, once again, I mean, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but the ridiculousness of the cert denial by the Supreme Court in October in Nishiri 2, where they affirm this, de- this divided DC Circuit decision saying, we don't need to worry. All of Nishiri's claims will be expeditiously resolved by the military commission. <laughs> It'll come back to us on direct appeal. They are now reaping what they sowed. That, that calls for the job of the hut laugh. Oh, 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 oh. I, I'm used to I'm used to the count you know um, count. That's more of a count Street. chocolate. Oh 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 no no count count um the count count, count the money count, the count on Sesame Street. <laughs> I know I know. Well, the, one, one. Oh, 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 oh. two times a one two <laughs> three times that that is the uh, character to be the mascot for the military commissions apparently the count. Now, we have other military stuff. Maybe the grouch. We got Smith v. Trump. Oh, gosh. Okay, so really quickly. We'll we'll just do lightning round on the rest of this stuff. So Smith v. Trump, this is a case that Bobby was argued last October, right? This is a cert in the D.C. Circuit. This is a military, Captain Nathan Smith, military service member, challenging his deployment on the ground that AUMF doesn't cover ISIS, therefore his deployment is illegal. District court dismissed the case on both standing and political question grounds. When we talked about before, we both thought it would be really nice if the panel would ignore the political question stuff, which is messy, and just say he doesn't have standing. Um, the panel now has a better idea. Um, late last week, Bobby, they issued a sua sponte briefing order <laughs> noting that Captain Smith's um, enlistment um, is or his deployment, something Depo- is, his deployment, his is, about deployment. To, is about to end. Yeah. Like this month. And, and does the briefing schedule actually like run like right up to or even over the end yes. of that? And it's like, the <laughs> which parties, is kind of funny. It's right. like that, that's almost hilarious. So someone was like, hey, instead of deciding this case, let's just sit on it until it becomes moot. Yeah. And lo and behold, that's where we're heading. Uh, All right. So the, Smith versus Trump looks headed for a mootness dismissal as clearly. opposed to a standing or political question affirmance. There you go. Which I think is not a bad result. Well, it's it's certainly it's certainly going to put an end to that, and, and it will concentrate minds all the further on the fact that Doe v. Mattis, it's in contrast, right, right. is heading right towards ruling on this issue. Contributing member. All right. Yeah. Um, the Beatles, right? So two different developments we want to talk about. One is this interesting Washington Post story with a lot of sort of internal administration gossip yep. about these two British detainees. Love that kind of story. Um, and one of the things, Bobby, that struck me about the story was apparently one of the people who's actually pushing aggressively for the U.S. to take charge of these guys is Attorney General Sessions, not for the purpose of prosecuting them in an Article Three court, but for the purpose of sending them to Guantanamo. That Sessions, not Mattis, is right. the one pushing aggressively for new Gitmo right. detainees. And of course, institutionally that sounds off, but individually that sounds about what you would expect. I agree with exactly both of those statements. I agree. But, but look at how things have changed where now it's not DOD, right, arguing for more detainees. It's DOJ, well, so let's let's say let's remind listeners: uh, El Shafi El Sheikh and Alexander Cody are these two formerly British citizens. Sorry, the Brits stripped their citizenship of uh, from them. Uh, they were part of a larger group of Brits who were Islamic State members who were particularly notorious. Blood in their hands, involvement in in harm to Western hostages in particular. I mean, they're bad and, dudes. They're real bad dudes, yep. and uh, they don't deny they're in the Islamic State. There's there's actually an interview with one of them. Some of the one of the weirdnesses of, of the situation with the SDF holding these people in Syria is the access that some reporters have been able to have, like go in and talk to them and 
Anyways, uh, they very, I think, regrettably have been tagged in the media as the Beatles. Um, I really wish we wouldn't soil that name in that way. In any event, um, there's a great piece by Alan Nakashima, Matt Zapatowski, and Saud McKennett on May 12th saying that uh, here's how the battle lines are drawn internally. And as Steve said, Attorney General Sessions is saying, look, bring them to Guantanamo. And it's not actually clear from the story whether that means bring them here to be tried by military commission or instead bring them simply to be held for the duration of hostilities. The the implication is military commission trial rather than civilian trial. Um, But it's also clear that the overall government position right now is we don't want them. Transfer them from SDF to the Brits. These guys were British citizens. And you have to view this in the context of the hundreds of other detainees that SDF is holding. This is where a lot of Islamic State captives are held in these makeshift facilities. And the point I keep hammering, that's not going to last forever, two to three years from now. Who knows if SDF is even still in the field, let alone uh, holding guys. There's there's a quote. Um, it says in the article uh, with reference to the uh, – SDF, they've become taxed by having to detain hundreds of captured foreign fighters. Basically, everyone's kind of shoving this off on them. No one who has uh, Islamic State citizens from their countries who are now Islamic State fighters, none of the European countries are taking these people back. Um, We don't know of any Americans in their midst. The one American we know about is John Doe. We have our own problem with that. Um, And we're not, and it doesn't help, of course, right? Diplomatically, if you're trying to urge the British and the Dutch or whoever to take these guys back. And And we're trying to kick this guy to Saudi Arabia. We're trying to kick this guy to Saudi Arabia. They can see that we're trying to avoid having these these situations in our lap. So that's a hugely important ongoing diplomatic negotiation. Watch that space. Um, The Brits don't want this guy back. They've been providing evidence to us that we could use to prosecute him in U.S. courts. The family of at least the Foley family and others have said we want, if if not an international tribunal, which I think is not Not remotely happening, um, we want an American civilian prosecution. The Brits are providing this evidence apparently on a no death penalty basis. And no Gitmo. And that's not, neither of which is a surprise at all. No, no, but 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 you know it's worth stressing. I mean, you know, if I'll just come out and say it, good for the Brits, right? Like, you know, listen, we're happy to accommodate you. We're happy to help you prosecute these guys consistent with our values. If we are fighting a war with the Islamic State, yeah. and it's okay that there's airstrikes killing them every day, then I cannot see why it's wrong to hold them for the duration of hostilities in any geographic location we might choose to use mm-hmm. Guantanamo sure. or otherwise. No, wrong, wrong, legally fine, but I mean. Guantanamo has not exactly covered itself with glory as a policy option. That the the question of the optics of it is an important question, but a separate question. There, it just strikes me as worth repeating that if we think it's okay to be dropping bombs on Islamic State fighters, it has to be okay to detain the ones that, that are captured, and it's okay for the SDF to do it. Then why isn't it okay to hold them at Guantanamo? I mean, I think the Brits have concerns that Guantanamo continues to be a black hole that this administration has thrown. Well, but you know it's not a black hole because we talk about the habeas litigation all the time. To the extent that we can. I mean, the secrecy surrounding I mean, Listen, I think the Brits have real concerns that Guantanamo, especially with this president, right, um, is has the risk of backsliding into some of the you know things that were bad about it 10, 15 years ago. Uh, you can say that, but they have habeas review, and this president even allowed the transfer of Darby onto Darby, so, what so if, it's not what, what if the Brits said we would allow transfer for purposes of military detention, just not at Guantanamo, so, great. You, can hold, so you can hold them at like South Carolina? Yeah, great. Do it. Okay. 
I mean, my understanding from the article is that the, it wasn't about you can't hold. It wasn't about no transfer to military detention. It was about no transfer to Guantanamo. I, I don't think we have any evidence one way or the other about whether they. I, I That's like, how it was reported. I, I think that the I didn't read it that way, but um, I certainly they said no Guantanamo. But I don't think we can assume that they would be okay with military detention. Otherwise, because yeah. because be, it's not a legal analysis, it's not a nuanced analysis. Yeah, it's the politics of it, and it would be uh, politically costly for them. I, but and once again, let me just say, I mean, I, I I suspect I feel more strongly about this than you do. The 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 optics of it being the Attorney General of the United States and not the Secretary of Defense, who is the leading voice for sending more detainees to Guantanamo, is quite distressing to me. Wholly apart from the policy wisdom. In that Sessions is apparently unwilling to acknowledge the far greater difficulties that Guantanamo raises versus the other options. Well, I, it, it doesn't strike me as odd, but I will say it does obviously for the chief law enforcement can, officer to not want to prioritize. Oh, I don't know, law enforcement and criminal prosecution. Again, you're assuming that it's not a lawful option to detain these guys militarily, and for the chief law enforcement officer to have to always favor the prosecution option, I don't think that follows. I'm not saying have to favor, but how about like just talk about what, like if if, if he's pushing Guantanamo because he thinks prosecutions aren't plausible or, or practicable, how about saying why? Right. Well, so the article kind of hints at this, and, and it has an interesting back and forth about where prosecutors are and where DOJ is on the likelihood of success. And there's a line up front in the article that says, yes, prosecutors think they could win, but they're worried that they wouldn't or that they wouldn't get a long sentence. And then this introduces a problem of having somebody here. But then later in the article, you get the feeling that the uh, line attorneys think it's a really good case. But there's some description of what the evidence would involve. And, and there is a clear statement of why this would indeed be hard. I think it's legitimately a hard case. Like you and I, it's easy for us to sit here <laughs> saying like, we know these guys are dirtbags. And I do believe that. Um, however, in terms of what's admissible in court, these guys were very careful to always wear masks whenever they were around any uh, any hostages. And so apparently a lot of the case would have to turn on voice identification and some other complexities of circumstantial evidence. And so I can see where there's a little anxiety. Um, I think they should go ahead and try to prosecute these guys because I don't want this to turn into a doc type situation. That's a reference to a, a Hezbollah fighter who was in uh, Iraq back when the United States military was in the initial phase in Iraq or, or in the, the post-occupation phase, if you will, when there were a lot of Iranian-backed and Hezbollah-backed uh, activities going on, killing American soldiers. And this guy was involved, had American blood in his hands, was in military detention in U.S. custody. But during the wind down of that process, we just couldn't sort out where to take him, what to do with him. Ultimately ended up at the very last minute having to turn him over to the Iraqis, they released him. Interesting little footnote to the Duck Duck story, um, which I used to write about a ton back around 2011, 2012. Apparently, he ended up, uh, Hezbollah in Iran sent him back to fight the Islamic State at a certain point, and he died there uh, in Iraq, uh, which is really remarkable, in 2014. Anyways, last thing about the uh, the Washington Post story. The State Department apparently, insofar as this article fully captures the building's view, but the State Department view is, hey, we are negotiating like mad to try to force the Europeans to take their citizen Islamic State fighters back from the SDF. And if we take this guy, it's going to undo that. So state in this context right. is holding the line saying, we're not taking them. Right. They're not Americans. Right. You need to take them. And I, I think that actually is right. If we if we show that we will start taking some of these SDF fighters off their hands, it's going to weaken the, the diplomats' uh, 
position, which surely is saying it's trying to trade on the idea that, look, if you won't take this guy back to France or wherever, then at some point they might just go free and you can't have that. And, and so I think state is trying to show that the United States is not going to provide the safety valve. So no wonder that one gets uh, the can gets kicked down the road. Yeah, just everything seems backwards. Now, let me, let me, I mentioned there was a separate article. Indeed. I want to say something about that. Please. The New York Times had its own article. Uh, this one was, uh, where is it? Uh, Margaret Coker on May 9th, talking about a really well, interesting you, kind you of- You brought receipts. I did. I did bring receipts. Um, an interesting glimpse behind the curtain for stuff that goes on all the time. But this is a, a depiction of uh, how a particular set of operations unfolded. And it went like this. Um, there was a key Islamic State figure that was hiding out in Turkey that the Iraqis figured out was there. They turn over information to the Turks saying, look, this guy is in this location. Here's who he is. The Turks grab him. They extradite him to Iraq. And so he ends up in Iraqi custody. Now, SDF, I said, has hundreds of these captured fighters. Lord knows how many end up in Iraqi custody over time. And it's super unclear from at least the the American media perspective that's what I have access to and can under and can, can access um, what exactly happens. Obviously, some are prosecuted, although it's really unclear what kind of prosecutions these are. Um, this article talks about how it's, quote, unclear where they're being held, whether they've been given access to a lawyer. Don't know what's going on with the guys that end up being captured, but how'd they get captured? The first guy is in Iraqi custody, and the article says that, quote, Iraqi and American intelligence officials spent weeks interrogating him, learning the details and whereabouts of other ISIS leaders in hiding. So a reminder that just because someone else is holding detainees doesn't mean that we are not involved in the interrogation. In any event, whatever that interrogation involved, apparently it was quite effective. He said lots of things about where people were. There were airstrikes based on that. And then they even got him to cooperate in a sting that lured a group of five other Islamic State figures out of hiding in Syria across the border into Iraq where they got captured. And now that group ends up on TV in short order wearing yellow jumpsuits and talking about how I did this thing for the Islamic State. I had that role. Really remarkable stuff. And I just contrast it with the SDF scenario, where you have the Iraqi government engaged, the model of doing detention by, with, and through your local partners. It works, and that and that may not be good for right. the rights of those individuals, but it works. Yep. Um, the SDF scenario is nothing like that. All right, watch that space. I mean, I, that's you've been saying for months, and I think not enough people have been listening, that that space is where there's a lot of work to be done and just it's it's largely a but but for this reporting right it's largely a black hole yep so all right um quick lightning round supreme court update so we had five decisions yesterday bobby from the supreme court actually a pretty interesting day um we had the you know sports betting decision yeah i I actually think just one little law nerd non-national security note for a second everyone's focused on the constitutional holding that this provision of PASPA was unconstitutional because of anti-commandeering. I love it. I can I can add that to Prince and New York. I actually think the, the much bigger deal is the severability discussion. So severability, dear listeners, is one of the nerdiest, like, you know, f- um, uh, eyes glaze over doctrines in federal courts. But it's yeah, the, wake, wake me up when this segment's over. Really quickly, right? <laughs> severability is what do you do to a statute when you strike down one provision of it? What happens to the rest of it? Does yeah. the whole statute fall because the provision is not severable? Or does the statute get sort of construed by the courts to operate as best as possible without the severed provision? Mm. Um, and do we get a tweak to severability doctrine? Well, we get the harbinger of a big fight, right? Which is, so the big debate in severability 
doctrine is whether severability is simply a question of statutory interpretation, which means the job of a court once they strike down a provision is to ask what Congress would have wanted right. but for that provision. Right. If they'd known this was part was going to work, not work, would they have wanted the whole thing to start over which, or would they want it to go on missing court, the amputated and, section? And courts are always good at you know asking what, a, what Congress thought yeah. – would have thought about something it didn't think and about. And lo and behold, it tends to come out the way that that – ruler that ruling party might have liked oh, right okay um or right is severability a doctrine about the remedial power of courts to provide effective relief for constitutional violations so without regard to what congress may have intended not in a without regard but not controlled, not controlled by what Congress. right so so where congress's intent is certainly relevant but not controlling and where the real question is what is the best remedy for the specific constitutional violation so for example in booker the sentencing guidelines case Right, the court doesn't look at congressional intent at all. It just says if the violation here was that the guidelines were mandatory, ah, we can properly solve the violation by just making the guidelines discretionary, which does not require taking down the whole statute. Right, so this is a fight that has, I think, real subtle but important implications. I mean, think about the 2012 health, uh, the NFIB, right? Oh the yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's huge. You know, the 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 four conservative justices thought that the Medicaid expansion's unconstitutionality should have brought down the whole statute, including the individual mandate. What, and, and I'm not sure what I think about that overall, but it's not crazy to think that. There was a grand bargain of economic forces being aligned quite, in certain ways, quite. and this did undo a big part of it. So anyway, so all that's to say that the majority opinion by Justice Alito and especially the concurring opinion by Justice Thomas are, I think, harbingers of a move toward the statutory interpretation view of severability that I think will be hard for sort of people on the street to understand, but that could have a far more profound impact yeah. on how federal courts do constitutional analysis of statutes so than I think some student, Some students should try to pick a couple of justices, maybe all of them, yeah. and try to develop a sense of, over time, how consistent are they in, in their these severability, severability rulings. Right. And my, my bet is that Justice Thomas is super consistent and nobody else's. Um, <laughs> sounds about right. But of course, one could also make the point that stop clocks are also right twice a day. Um, yeah, I, I, think it's a com- I think it's common ground for, for Justice Thomas's supporters and critics that he is consistent. very consistent. Oh, I think he's the yeah. most teachable of the current justices yeah. for con law. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, other things in the Supreme Court. So there was an interesting Sixth Amendment case we don't really talk about. Um, there's an interesting sort of exclusionary rule case. But of most relevance to our listeners is this unanimous decision in Byrd versus United States, right? Um, and Byrd is this case about whether um, a driver of a rental car who is not an authorized user on the rental car agreement thereby forfeits the expectation of privacy that a driver of a car would otherwise have when subject to a traffic stop. Okay. Um, And the argument what the government made was an unauthorized user of the car is not in lawful possession of the car and therefore should be treated like a carjacker, basically. Right, okay. Um, And the Supreme Court said no. Um, right, that that leaving aside sort of whether in a specific case someone was was manipulating this to take advantage of that, like just so as there a, could be a carve out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but just as a general rule, no, the mere fact that you're not an authorized user does not convert you into a thief. Um, now that's an interesting point for Fourth Amendment purposes, but the relevance I think to national security law comes from this passage from Justice Kennedy's opinion. Um, the government further stresses that Byrd's driving the rental car violated the rental agreement that Reed signed, and it contends this violation meant Byrd could not have had any basis for claiming an expectation of privacy in the rental car at the time of the search. 
As anyone who has rented a car knows, car rental agreements are filled with long lists of restrictions. Examples <laughs> include prohibitions on driving the car on unpaved roads or driving <laughs> while using a handheld cell phone. Or if you go to the Virgin Islands, driving the car on St. John at all. Um, few would contend <laughs> that violating provisions like these has anything to do with a driver's reasonable expectation of privacy in the rental car. Interesting. So all or, right. our friend Oren Kerr made the point that this should put the kibosh on the argument the government's made elsewhere that violating the terms of service of particular software or hardware providers um, or internet service providers um, forfeits expectation of privacy, this suggests that that's not true. Um, right, that simply being in violation of your terms of service does not of itself eliminate the expectation of privacy to which you are otherwise entitled. So I think it's fair to say that it's taking the, let's assume, a violation of terms of service, it's downgrading it from a suggested uh, automatic determining factor to a perhaps relevant factor, but definitely not controlling. Which I think is really, could be very important. Especially, I think that makes a lot of sense. So do I, but I think it's also not where all the courts are. And I think it's yeah. going to, you know, that together with Carpenter, which should come out soon about cell side information, is going to have a real impact on sort of how the Fourth Amendment de deals with digital information. Carpenter's coming soon. Get um, ready. So is Dalmazi. By the way, really quickly on Dalmazi, we're yeah. down to four potential authors. All right. Do any of them... Is there a short list of authors? If it's this person, then you might win. Kagan. And is she on your list? Yes. All right, we're all right. We're down to Breyer, uh, we're down to Breyer, Alito, Sotomayor, and Kagan for the four outstanding cases from January. Oh, man. Um, and at least two of those I'd be happy with, although I think Sotomayor would be unusual in this context. Interesting. Al Alito, Alito and Breyer, not right. good. We'll all be right. watching. Um, Final bit of lightning round? Really quickly on Iran. So I just want to say one quick thing on the, on the plot from the Iran agreement. I mean, this is obviously a big deal in national security policy. Um, right. National security law, I mean, so, you know, Jack Goldsmith wrote a piece last week that got a lot of circulation basically saying, hey, you know, if President Obama wanted this agreement to really outlast him, right, he should have submitted it to Congress, right? That, you know, the, the, the structure of the agreement, the sort of form of the agreement necessarily opened it up to exactly this kind of unilateral, you know, uh, uh, withdrawal retrocession. It was not a treaty because... He couldn't possibly have gotten a treaty through the treaty-making process. Yep. It wasn't a congressional executive agreement. It, it was something that, by definition, was not legally binding on the United States in the way that those types of instruments would have been. Yep. So, listen, I don't disagree with that for a second. I just want to make two. So, but a lot of folks ran with Jack's post and said, yeah, you guys who are saying this is, a, you know, this is really, really bad, shut up. And my response is, well, wait, 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 right? <laughs> I can agree that President Trump had the authority as chief executive to unilaterally withdraw from a exec, sole executive agreement without thinking that it's a good idea that he did so. Yeah, clear. This is, you know, people who conflate uh, the legalities of a move with the policy wisdom of a move aren't paying enough but attention. But I feel like too often these days, right, like, you know, President Trump's defenders are very quick to say, well, it's legal, so shut up. And my response is, that has legality has never been the sine qua non of political discourse. I, in this I, I think sadly, people, lots of people out there on all sorts of issues and all sorts of contexts, will take advantage of the possibility to say, "Hey, it's legal, it's illegal," when they're trying to make policy arguments. But also, I just can't resist pointing out that it also is still not settled that the president couldn't have unilaterally withdrawn from a treaty, right? I mean, that the you know going back to Goldwater versus Carter mm -hmm. and the Taiwan the Taiwan Treaty termination case. Um, it's actually a very important open question in constitutional law. Yeah, one of, one of the big foreign relations law uh, 
Chestnuts. Old right. chestnuts. Indeed. I, I actually, you know, I, I need to talk to the associate dean. I would actually love one day to teach a pure foreign relations law class. What are you teaching next year? Uh, national security law and Fed courts. And you're doing the version of NSL that is Detention, treatment, and trial. Yeah. Should, should, should we do foreign relations instead? No, because we got to cover that. Look at all the stuff that's happening. And I'm doing I'm doing NSL intelligence. Right. Uh, covered I could do a whole semester like Al Nashiri. National security law through yeah. the lens of Al Nashiri and Doe versus Mattis. Hey, right. you, you just teach a free overload. We got no problem. <laughs> uh, Karen might have a problem. Yes, it, but yeah. she's not listening. Um, all right, really quickly because I have won the bet. We're at an hour and five minutes. Darn it! So frivolity. What, right. what, what what are you feeling frivolous about? Well, you know, I think I'm feeling pretty good about my prediction that once the Spurs were out, I gradually threw my predictive powers into the corner of the Golden State Warriors, and they they looked very good last night. They certainly looked every bit the All Star team that they are. Meanwhile, the, the Philadelphia 76ers, who I predicted would win the East and face the Rockets in the finals. Boy, you cursed them. <laughs> no, so uh, look, I think. A couple of things. One, the Celtics continue to win. It's Indeed. really incredible. You, and I think the coaching is getting a lot of – Brad Stevens is getting a lot of love and deservedly so. Some of his Although young players. not from his colleagues. Right? Uh, he got like no, no votes for coach of the year. Well, wait. Isn't, isn't it what's-his-face who just got fired from the Raptors who's going to be coach yeah, of the year? Casey. That's something else. Um, I think the, the Warriors are not going to sweep the Rockets, but they've definitely made a statement in taking back home court advantage. Oh, yeah, no, no. I, I now, I mean, the Rockets are going to have to really turn something around at this point to, to get, to get back They've got the in. firepower. Like, one of these nights, their threes are going to be dropping, and they'll they'll adapt. They're they're not going to not adapt. Part of what was going on was, as I understood it, um, the the coaching strategy that Steve Kerr came up with was when, uh, when James Harden comes out top and just kind of yeah. waits to either blow past someone or shoot over him, they brought these, they brought their bigs out yep. and made it really hard to do either because the Golden State big are not so easy to just roll around. The ESPN had some statistic that like uh, Houston ran 45 single isolation plays last night. Yeah, that's not going to work. That's you insane. cannot defeat the Warriors. Apparently that's that the most, since they've started tracking this NBA, that's the most by like a lot in any game well, ever. Well, tell you what, I imagine a lot of the other players in the Rockets other than James Harden were pretty unsatisfied with this. But this, you know, Harden's, you know, Screwed up like this before. <laughs> he's not a, he's not great on defense. Yeah. Um, speaking of people who are great on defense, you know, I as you might imagine, I'm super super upset about this whole Kawhi Leonard business going down with the Spurs, where he apparently he's now letting it be known that he really wants out and he's mad at the Spurs. I don't understand how this all possibly could happen. I really worry about what kind of it's a very Knicks like story. It is, and it's a not shame. Spurs. So the question is, what's the trade deal to be done? Because yeah. you, you can't you got to trade the guy at this point. I think. Anyways, watch that space. Is this the point where we get to talk about Westworld? Uh, only after I leave the room. <laughs> I'm working on it. Come I'm on, working man. on it. We'll have lots of uh, post-show uh, recaps later on. Uh, all right, one last thing. I'm very excited. Uh, this Saturday night is the premiere of HBO's remake of Fahrenheit 451. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that looks good. That. It looks very good. So um, maybe you'll watch one maybe of I'll those things so we can talk about it. All right, good. There's now, so much happening on Westworld, dude. You've got to catch up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best. There's a huge reveal on episode four. Well, and there's a smaller reveal that Karen actually called, like from the. So it's interesting, right? You know how shows sometimes, um, more often, will show like you know previously on yeah, so and yeah, so. Yeah. So I've never seen Game of Thrones was the first show I ever saw do this, and Westworld's now the second, where you actually really need to pay attention to the previously on. All oh, right, they drop all kinds of clues. They drop what they all kinds of clues just in what's in the previously on. Now, and sometimes to the point, I felt like Game of Thrones was like this, where you thought. Oh, well, wait a minute. Now I, I, I can immediately guess that something's going to happen with this character. And based on where the story is, it's probably going to have to be something. Sometimes. I mean, lines. listen, I mean, to be fair, Game of Thrones still had plenty of stuff you weren't ready for. Well, that's for sure. Right. But my point is just like, so so there were two huge reveals. I mean, there are a bunch of reveals in, in Sunday's Westworld episode. Um, one of them, 
I had sort of seen coming, you know, indirectly. One of them, um, Karen, just watching the previously on, was like, oh, so that's that. Oh, well, she's she's smart. Uh, I noticed how you've managed to get us talking about it, even though I've well, seen it. So we yeah. must stop here. Ugh. And also, also, we've hit our mark. Oh, it's time? It's you mean time. people don't want to listen to us anymore? I'm sure most are gone already. All right, well, send us your one-hit wonder requests, suggestions, thoughts. Um, you know, hopefully we won't have to record another episode until our third quarter quell next week. 75th episode! There's, what's that, what's the, what's the, for 75th anniversary you get, like... Oh, I have no idea. Was, it's, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> who, who makes it to uh, today? Like, who, you know? Yeah, we get some extra listeners, we hope. Uh, so send us your one-hit wonder ideas. Yep. And also, you know, the 100th episode isn't that far off. We should we should record live somewhere, somewhere. here in Austin. So if uh, let us know if you think you'd show up ah. if we did a live recording. Yes, if we did a live show in in Austin or somewhere nearby, would you come? There you go. Somewhere nearby, like, like should we go to Lukenbach? Or, uh, you know, some, something drivable that's not in Lockhart? Oh, a barbecue episode. Take, like, like call the salt pit, get like a, ba- a room at the salt pit and do an episode in barbecue? I think, <laughs> I think that's an awesome idea. Hey, the Strauss Center sponsors this podcast, right? The, uh, you know, our, our, our fall cybersecurity conference is still on the drawing board, but the, the hashtag, it's hashtag cyber barbecue. That's the, we're, we don't even know what the panels would be about. Eh. We just know there's going to be barbecue. I, last thing, and then we'll go. I, I had a friend in college who was the managing opinion editor of the college student newspaper, and there was one week where a student who was supposed to write a column backed out on him. So he was left with like this, you know, empty space, you know, with two hours before print time. Uh, we were a weekly paper, and so he decided to just write a column that start where he wrote the block quotes first. And then, oh, nice. and then nice. wrote the column to catch up to the block quotes. I think that that mode of operating could work very well where barbecue's involved. Right. Pick the food first and then figure out what you're going to talk about. It's all good. All right. Uh, Bobby is at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Tell your favorite 10-layer dip constructors and, you know, Beatles. I think I think uh, we're getting close to ten thousand listeners. Help Are we? Us, yeah. Put us over. Put us over the edge, please. You know, we might actually get like advertising at some point. What? Yeah, if if we can get a little income stream from this, we could eat a lot of barbecue with it, and maybe even get the audio right. No, right. no, 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 no. We're spending it on barbecue. Stay safe out there. Adios.